is John Fraser. I'm an intensive care professor at the Critical Care Research Group at the Prince Charles Hospital and also the Director of Intensive Care here at St Andrew's War Memorial Hospital in Brisbane. John, thank you for talking with the Queensland Clinical Senate. I'd like to start by taking you back to early 2020 when you started getting reports from colleagues overseas about COVID-19. Can you reflect on your experience? Yeah, it, it was fascinating. I mean, we're here by mistake in a way. Um, prior to 2020 kicking off, we had one of my colleagues, Kenny Bailey, great uh, scientist clinician over from Edinburgh and the Roslyn. And we'd been interested to see why some people who got influenza got really, really sick and why some people needed to paracetamol and to watch Netflix. So from November, he came across from Glasgow to join us to have some pizza and some wine and some beach time and we worked out a plan for the next flu that happened across uh, China. I'm chair of the Asia Pacific ECMO Society so November, December we had a committee created so that the next flu that happened we could look at it and find out what happened. Um, Our research group in the critical care research group has a big international community about 26 different nationalities and we've got big networks across Asia so January 10th-ish, we started getting people phoning saying, hey, something's happening in a place called Wuhan. We didn't know where Wuhan was. They said it might be the next flu. And we said, okay, great, let's create a protocol where we can start to gather data and then maybe start looking at the genetic changes associated with people who become really sick and people who don't get too sick. So um, over the next week, myself, my co-collaborators, Gianluigi Labassi and Jackie Soen wrote a protocol had it written by about January 21st, 22nd. By that time, the virus hadn't been named. Uh, we didn't know what type of virus it was, um, and we thought it was going to be stay stuck in Asia Pacific. It was registered by about January 26th, Australia Day, and we started collecting data before February 1, and then suddenly the wheels started to fall off and we realised it wasn't just going to stay in Wuhan and perhaps Korea and it just grew bigger and bigger. We do, we actually were talking about this just a week ago when Jackie, um, who's the sensible one of the three of us, said, listen, five countries enough and Gianluigi, who's the Italian stallion, said, no, 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 Jackie, let's do Milan because we had a lot of people from Milan in our group. Let's do Milan, let's go to Milan, but Milan is the last, I promise you, is the last country ever. So um, that was when we were in five countries and we're now in 54. So Gianluigi uh, owes Jackie a bottle of wine. And so, John, once we started to get modelling that was predicting the number of Queenslanders who would need intensive care, what was your experience then? Then it started to become really real. I mean, we were seeing stuff across uh, in different countries and people were phoning us and saying, how do we ventilate them? Their lungs are reacting differently. They're going, more of them have got renal failure. They're waking up. They've got really bad delirium. What do we do? And we, we didn't know anything. But these are people that I've worked with for 5, 10, 20 years. They're brilliant people. And they were just asking for help because there just wasn't any data there. Um, and we started to hear that Queensland would be hit. And it, it, yeah, there was a very, very reasonable, very sensible um, uh, prediction that it was going to happen. It was almost like watching a tornado offshore. And you know it's going to come on shore. And the question is, how do you batten down the hatches? And I think all credit goes to the public health people across Queensland and Australia, um, where we have, of course, Melbourne had a terrible time and there have been some six deaths, I think, in, in Queensland. That's terrible. But we've managed to avoid so much of it. But when, once it started looking at it was coming here, then it was, you know, 
how do we prep the units? How do we prep our workforce? What do we do when we start getting sick? Those of us with kids, do we go home and stay with the kids or do we lock in for a week? And there was a whole pile of different ideas that people were doing across the world, none of which were wrong, none of which were right. It was just we were we were kind of running blind. So we were fortunate that we were getting this data and we did a weekly call um, with all our member sites and we started, I think, 20 or 30 hospitals. And within probably mid-February, mid-March, we had 220, 240 hospitals from around the world joining. So we were getting to hear firsthand without any media spin, you know, people on a Zoom call, um, leaders in our field just being broken, you know, just people that we've known as good fun and clever and got to meet at conferences and gone for a glass of wine or a pizza or, you know, whatever. Suddenly just being distraught, not having been home for a week, not having slept um, and being here fairly impotent and powerless. Uh, so that was the time we said, listen, we we have a responsibility. We're incredibly fortunate. We're a big island. We're miles from anywhere. Our public health people have done a great job. We have to do something to try and help these people. And so, John, was this the beginning of the COVID consortium? Yeah, well, I mean, it started already before then, but we, the question was really, what do we do? You know, it was good for us to gather the data. And, the, the you know, what we could see talking to all these great people from across the world was there was lots of data out there. But as frequently happens, the data is in separate silos and pools and people weren't sharing or they were sharing within their country or within their city or within their health district. But it doesn't really work, you know, to get with these many cases happening. We had to bring it together because once the data comes together, that's when power happens. So then we said, listen to the clinicians, what is it you want? You know, we're here, but we're we're pretty high, high and dry. We're here. What do you want? And they said, we need to be able to assess the data quickly and rapidly so we can work out what's happening. And that's when we started talking to IBM and Amazon Web Services and said, we're going to create a dashboard. Everyone's got a mobile phone, richest and poorest countries. Everyone's got a mobile phone. Um, can we get this data? And if you imagine it as human jigsaw puzzle pieces, if you've got 10,000 jigsaw puzzle pieces and they're scattered across the world, you don't see a picture. But if we can bring those 10,000 data pieces together, you get a perfect picture. Maybe not perfect, but something better than nothing. So we said, give us help, but don't give us what you want. Speak to our members and co-develop it with us. And they, to be fair, um, Bella Bain is the person that led the programme from IBM. They've been fantastic because we said we don't want a computer company to give us something. We've all had EMRs that we hate because it's been developed in isolation without clinicians mostly. Give us something the clinicians that are in the heat of this fire need. So they went out to, we gave them emails and got them connected. I think it was to 20 different specialists from across the world, from <clears throat> from um, the poor countries, you know, low-middle income countries and the really wealthy countries. And there was actually a lot of similarity of the data they wanted. So it was co-developed. Bella and our team went back and forward between these people and saying, what do you want? How should it look? How, what are the key things you need? How usable? How reproducible? And we did that, I think, for four months. Um, and so what now happens is we've got a dashboard um, with all the data. It's about 4,500 patients worth of data. And it's really um, consumable data. It's got uh, what are called Sankey diagram plots. So you can follow who was on ECMO, who was in ventilation, who was in dialysis, what drugs they had, what was the change in their white cell count, what were the markers that associated with long-term ventilation, who did the worst. So that it's not to tell doctors individually what to do with Mrs. Smith, 
But if you're sitting there at three in the morning and you've got a 65 year old whose oxygenation is 82 and 100% oxygen and the kidney function is going down, you can create a scenario based on four and a half thousand like patients. So you can narrow it down. It'll say 83% of patients with these scenarios will do X, Y, Z. And and that's in some of the more wealthy countries. But what we've seen now is as the health services become overwhelmed, it to try and work out if they've only got one bed and there's five people for that one bed the clinician has to have more data to help them now it's not to say that that should stop that that's still the clinician's decision but what we're doing is we're giving them more and more data into their hands chatting to one of our colleagues a guy called dave thompson in south africa at so grootshire was the place where the first ever heart transplant happened with christian barnard so it's not it's not a poor hospital by any means but they were two hours out of running out of oxygen yesterday not beds, not ECMO, not ventilators, oxygen. Zimbabwe's run out of oxygen already, and Kenya has run out of oxygen. So you've got a limited resource. You need to maximise the data and have it as pure and as raw so that it's not been through an editorial process. It's it's real, it's honest, it's de-identified, it's all safe, etc. But you have to be able to know the data to know what to do next. And journals are fantastic and we're publishing, there's 14 or 15 papers already being created. That's good for us and it's good to look into. But sitting at three in the morning, waiting for six months for that journal article to come out, that's that's fantastic and it's still useful and all credit to the people in Oxford that have done the great studies with steroids, etc. But you want to know what to do next at that bed space and this kind of assists in that way. And it's, as I say, it's granular data, it's easy to understand and interpret. And then behind that, again, talking to the different member countries in our group, we, the, the, the low middle income country said, well, these journals, whether it's ours or someone else's, we don't have access to them. You know, we take this for granted in Queensland that we can have access to electronic medical journals and they don't. So we went back to IBM and said, listen, the dashboard's great. It's consumable, it's right, and we've given it to 500 users who have said, you know, kind of spot on with some tweaks. But could we at least level the playing field for the low-middle-income countries? They might not have more the ventilators or even the nursing capacity, but if we can give them all the information. So now what we've done is built into the dashboard are all the electronic medical journals relevant to covid whether you're a rich or poor country, you can access it. Now, we haven't finalised it yet, and the Gates Foundation are coming on board and Wellcome Trust as well to try and get us this. But that would be a lovely thing to be able to give them the data, but also all the medical literature that we have access to. We can't give them the ventilators. We can't give them the oxygen. But it would be a good thing for us to be able to do so that at least they've got every piece of information that can help them at two in the morning when they're at that bed space. ICU clinicians have been in touch with each other before from around the world, but this is, sounds like next level. Yeah, what was happening at the kickoff was everyone was texting each other and WhatsApping each other and saying, hey, what do you do? What, what have you done? Now, some hospitals will get a thousand patients, so they'll be able to create their protocols, but some hospitals are getting five or ten, and they're saying, well, I, I tried this with Mrs. Smith. Did it work? Uh, I think so. Oh, okay. But that's not very scientific. So basically what we did was we said, we'll give us a meeting place, an electronic town square. And we would each week we would meet, um, be an hour and a half. And it was just phenomenal, just the, the, the brilliance and, uh, and the honesty of the people on that call. And we would hear from, you know, different countries. And sometimes so we, on one of the calls we had Wuhan speak, followed by New York, Columbia, Presbyterian. 
So the, the, the politicians can't speak, but the doctors on the wards were speaking. They would have um, South Africa speak beside London. And it just became, um, as a Glaswegian, it became very socialist. Mm-hmm. It became very equal because the virus really doesn't care whether you're black or white or rich or poor. Um, we've seen some incredibly poor countries, Vietnam, doing superbly well. And we've seen some incredibly rich countries, the US, doing appallingly. Mm-hmm. So the virus doesn't pick where it goes. And that's what the clinicians showed they showed the politicians up. You know, our crew have done reasonably well, but, you know, the, the silliness that's happened, the clinicians said, let's just park that. It's not relevant. I don't care whether you're red or blue. This is a condition that's going to kill people. Let's try and do it. So that, that to me was, you know, I was exhausted doing it, but it was an absolute buzz watching how beautifully people work together. John, I read a comment from you about the work of the consortium and you said, while we still can't fly to see our families, our data can fly and help. So how has the data helped and has there been any major breakthroughs? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I, I like travelling. I go to lots of, with my research group, we've got lots of talks and things. Suddenly I'm, I'm, I can't fly and I miss that. But the power of the data and the relationships you've created beforehand, but also the new relationships you can create, um, it's faster, it's more efficient, it's more carbon friendly as well. Um, So I think I'll answer it in two ways in terms of how is the data helped? I think we've brought together a family that, and, and having people to communicate of like-minded people is really good, really important because you're thinking, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? And suddenly you hear peers and leaders within your group and you're thinking, actually, no, that sounds reasonable. I am not too far off the mark. Um, the dashboard is up. It gives people um, an aid that they like to use. There's about 14 papers coming out and a number of them have got really interesting findings. Um, We've got a couple published already, but there's one at the moment where, um, I won't go into it too much because it's not going through peer review process yet, but it looks like some of the things we do with neuromuscular blocking agents um, are associated with higher mortality. Now this is counterintuitive to us, it's not normal for intensive care. But it does seem robust and statistical power is there. We're, again, very fortunate with um, uh, Nicole Smith and Adrian Barnett, who's the ex-president of Australian Stats Society, doing a lot of the stats for us. Really strong, robust signals. So it, it looks like we might be doing not the perfect thing there. Now, it's not a randomised controlled study, but what we're now doing is saying, OK, here's observational data that looks like this drug is associated with this outcome. Then we will pass this up to a group called RemapCap, which is a adaptive study design. See, this is observational data. We now think you should do this in a randomised controlled study to see whether it's right or wrong. RemapCap, just for the listeners, is a fantastic idea. And it's been around for about 10 years to have study ideas ready to go and adaptive study design for community-acquired pneumonias. The way that the number of those questions and those potential treatments have been worked out are people sit around a room and they go, I think steroids might work because of X, Y, Z. Great idea. And steroids do work in COVID. But some of the ideas have just been taken from expert level ideas. What we're able now to provide is observational data to guide that study design. So rather than five or six people who are brilliant sit in a room and come up with an idea, look at five or 6,000 data points and say, this 
is a potential avenue for a new treatment system. And then we're looking to seeing, you know, who gets ECMO and who gets ventilation, at what time should they go to ventilation, who shouldn't go in ECMO, who shouldn't go in ventilation. Um, so uh, there's a multitude looking at the cardiac studies. And then we were one of the first groups to realise, again, just because we had so many groups on, that people were getting better from COVID, but they weren't going back to normal. And we, by mid-February last year, had the um, uh, the after-course study. So it's a long-term study for two-year follow-up. And that's already started to accumulate data to see, because we've seen from, I think, Italy and London, about 10 or 15% of people who have been discharged post-COVID are readmitted within six months. That's a huge figure. And that's just the ward-based. So if you imagine the ICU patients are sicker, the number of people that get readmitted is probably even higher. Now, that's bad for them, but it's really bad for society because that's 15% of people that can't go back to work, maybe need childcare, maybe need long-term nursing help, can't earn a wage, can't give tax back to society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, we've got grants through uh, Johns Hopkins and we're putting another grant in through the NIH and the Wellcome Trust to look and see these data are going along we need to start following them. Um, again, we don't have the papers published there yet, but what we have realised is we need to follow these people long term. Now, I think this is where the opportunity with COVID, um, we, we can't miss. Um, we have to do things differently and Zoom and all these things have changed it. Um, but people don't want to go back to hospitals to get followed up. No one knows how long you're immune for. Hospitals are bursting at the seams. You can't, don't have waiting rooms. You need to wear masks. So what we've managed to do is create apps for long-term follow-up. So to do six-minute walk tests and cognitive design, um, you know, um, cerebellar function, etc. So we can get a lot of this data by having someone in the house. So again, talking to Gates, we've said, look, we think what we've done with the dashboard and using electronic media smarter will be great for COVID, but it can also change the way that we do clinical medicine afterwards because we've had to, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We've had to do this kind of stuff. And I think we've made lots and lots and lots of mistakes, but we've learned along that way so that after this finishes, please God, it finishes. After this finishes, we can use the lessons that we've learned here and the network that we've learned here to do the next study. So they see, right, the next study we want to do is this. We've got a network of 400 hospitals across 55 countries who are good people. You're ready to press the button and go. And John, have you had feedback from a clinician on the ground who has said, I had a patient, I looked up the dashboard and I was able to make decisions from that? Have you had that sort of feedback? Yes, um, it, it's a tricky one because what it's population data and what we would say is you'd never guide one person's treatment based on population. But what it does do is doctors just like data and we use the data. So if I walk out to the intensive care next door and I see the blood pressure is low and the oxygen levels is, I will decide to do something. That's based on one patient. But it's also based on my 20 odd years of experience. What this does is it gives a really powerful piece of data for the clinician to have. And we don't say do this. But what comes next once we get the tens, fifteens, twenty thousands data, we can start applying machine learning to it and it can look for signals. So at the moment what we are doing is for the fourteen or fifteen studies, I'm let's say interested in lung function and COVID. So I'm going to pick my question and see whether it's right or wrong. So I produce the hypothesis and I see if it's yes or no. What will start happening is and we're again we're working with the Gates Foundation on this is it's almost, you can put an algorithm across all the data 
So it's, you know, 350 patient data points day one, 150 thereafter, times 4,000, which will become 6,000, which will become 10,000, hopefully. We're not there yet. But once that kind of level of data is there, you basically put a computer algorithm, and when I say you, it's not me, I can turn the computer on. You put this algorithm across and it can see associations where we wouldn't see associations. That then becomes incredibly powerful and then to use the machine learning. So it might not guide you, it won't tell you, you must turn the ventilator up, Mrs. Smith, but it'll give the clinician oodles more data. And yes, people are using it. And in fact, in some of the poorer countries, when they're saying, you know, if we look at patients over the age of 75 who are diabetic, the outcome is so much worse than those under the age of 40. We've got two beds. That guides. Uh, and that sounds a nasty thing to think of, but it's real. And, you know, there's another paper that we're writing with Oxford University in the head of the Journal of Medical Ethics how do you determine who gets which, you know, if, you, if you've got one ECMO machine, three patients, who gets it? Again, having this global um, family of clinicians, we think differently. So we did a couple of polls in the papers getting published at the moment saying, you know, if if it's a school teacher and they need ECMO, would they get it? Or if they've had a criminal record, would you withhold it if you've only got one machine? Or if it's a mother of twins? Mm would they get the ECMO before the grandpa who's been a high court judge? Because these are decisions that are made in the ground every day. And they might not make the newspaper, but we make them every day. And sometimes we make them in a data vacuum. And what we're trying to do is help fill that data vacuum. Mm, Tough decisions. Mm. You mentioned the family that the COVID consortium has created. How has the consortium been able to help intensivists from a personal perspective? Um, Hugely, it's brought, there's strength in numbers, you know. um, uh, You know, if you think of someone tackling, I've got four boys, so I think in rugby and football analogies, if you think of what a scrum can do versus what a single player can do, we've got a scrum of 400 hospitals pushing the same way. It's good for hospital clinicians uh, to go up to their managers and say, we need these many beds because this is what's going to happen next and this is what's happening because it has been a wave. You know, we'd, each week we'd talk to people. So, for example, again, South Africa, fantastic uh, chap there. Um and you know, each week you'd go out, they say, we've got very few cases, we've got very few cases, we're getting a couple more cases, we're getting, oh geez, we're getting a couple more cases too. And then he'd kind of go offline for a couple of weeks because they're just getting washed in, in, in the tsunami of cases. But they can follow the pattern that's happening in other countries. And, and David again has said to me, he goes to his medical executive or his CEO and says, this is what's happening next. You're about to be out of ventilators next week. We need to get them together. Um, working with the ECMO community, the global ECMO community, um, they've now created a, a national resource whereby the ECMO machines can be moved from place to place because, let's say, the East Coast gets hit first and then the disease goes across to the West Coast. So by communications, everything. So that part is there. But they also know what's coming next. They know the number of ventilators. They know what happens with the average uh, patient with a ventilator. So that's... And then in a very simple personal um, case... Uh, we would have world leaders on and junior doctors. And there was a case in Vietnam with a fantastic young doctor, Dr. True, consultant, um, very, very able, but they don't have much ECMO in Vietnam. And there was a patient uh, who started clotting on the ECMO machine. They had an atypical reaction. And they said, we've never seen this. We don't know how to do this. Professor Fraser, can you help? I was on the call. I said, I think I can, but hold on. Dr. Bartlett, are you on the call? Bob Bartlett is an 85-year-old man who invented ECMO. And he's on the call. 
And I said, oh, I can probably help a wee bit. But um, Dr. Barlett, yes, John. <laughs> uh, and I've got the case in Vietnam. Would you be okay to speak to True? Dr. True, I would be honoured to help you. So True, downtown Vietnam, had the man that invented this, That you know, who's a rock star in our world. And uh, he and Heidi Dalton, a couple of others, met with her every week, did a kind of war down with them every week and got the chap off ECMO and got him back home. And it turns out he's Scottish. It was an even better save. What a story. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And it was, it was by mistake, but that's what happens when you bring people together. And there's all sorts of people saying, I've seen this before. I'll talk to you offline. And this is, yeah. the chat room was just buzzing. Uh, you know, and, and that is the beauty. You know, we think, God, we can't travel. We travelled much more last year intellectually and virtually yes. than we did ever before. And what about from that peer support perspective where you've 14 days straight of horrendous shifts and just having that family to talk to who understand really what you're going through? Have you seen some of that support from the consortium? Yeah, so we, we've got psychiatrists involved as well. Um, when we spoke to the guys at the Royal, Dylan Flaws was a great guy at the Royal, um, saying, listen, so there was what you started to see was good people behaving badly, really good clinicians. And I saw it here too. Um, maybe they had kids or they were looking after a grandma that had diabetes or they were just so nervous. And it was a case of how do you offer peer support? So Dylan and a group at the Royal started that. And also across, I think, the UK, the US and Dylan are starting to write some grants about the peer support because... Because once your clinicians, doctors, nurses, allied health get sick mm. and underperform, then the patient has has issues. The, the question is, how do you do it? You know, uh, as a Scots person, the best way to deal with things if something goes wrong in intensive care is you go out for a drink. Whether it's a coffee or a glass of wine or a pie, you go and sit down and you you can do you know, groups and things like that. But we, we that's not our thing. But you can't do this. Suddenly you, you have a, something goes wrong at work. You sit and have a cry. You can't have a hug because you're not meant to hug. You're standing behind masks and then you go mm. and you don't go out. You know, in the US and the UK, they can't really go out. So, but I do think having people to talk to with like-minded people, people have just been much happier to open the dialogue and I think everyone's been much freer um, than they normally be. Not because people have been bad in the past, it's just never been a thing. So I do, I do think it's an important part of what we're doing and it's not other than a couple of grants that Dylan and the crew are starting to write. It's not been officialised, but it's just there. It's an understanding. If you're struggling, reach out and no one said no. And so where to from here with the COVID consortium? Well, um, we didn't really stop over Christmas, unfortunately. I think there's I think there's about six or eight papers in. There's more and more interest in the cardiac side. So we've got subgroups. We're looking at cardiac dysfunction, kidney, um, ethics, uh, respiratory, obviously, neurological outcome, long-term neurological outcome. So... It just grows. The more data, so the way I've uh, analogised it is the uh, the dashboard is like the Maserati. You know, it's a car, it's a vehicle that can take us places, but without the petrol, the data, it won't get this value. So the more data comes in, the more valuable it become. The more use, the more papers, the more the dashboard is useful, and so it goes on. So, getting the dashboard ready just before Christmas was a huge boon for us. Uh, you know, it has. Um, it's made me proud to be a doctor again, and uh, just seeing how selfless—not us, but the people in the heat of the fire—are, and we we are in a privileged position that we can try and help. Just one last question, John. You've had great success with your research over the years. Has that been put on hold during COVID, or are you still also managing all of your other research on top? 
Yeah, research is one of those things you can't press pause on, or maybe I'm just not very good at it. No, we didn't press pause. When the, our animal lab went offline for a couple of months because we didn't want to be using PPE in the animal lab when we thought we weren't going to have enough for the clinical, so we stopped. Um, but that's back up and running. We've finished um, our heart transplant model where we now can use dead hearts for transplant with David McGiffin. And that's been an absolutely brilliant study. But my team, I'm just so proud of the, the work effort and no one said no. So there's a lot of things going on there. And then with the MedTech startup funds, that's working too. I think people are suddenly realising that, you know, medics can lead the world uh, because the world kind of stopped there for a while and it's the, the whether it's the vaccine scientists and you know we're incredibly proud of Paul Young and all his group the clinicians the ID specialists I think got hats off to our public health colleagues here mm. they've kept us safe but I, I so no nothing stopped it's just I got less sleep yeah it sounds like you wouldn't have got much sleep at all John thank you very much for talking to the Senate today and thank you for everything you've done for the community and intensivists around the world over the last 12-18 months thank you thanks again not, not me my team thank you very much <laughs>